another pot of coffee is brewing and I've just had my third breakfast cup of the day. And if I'm being honest, I am going to be keeping on with the hot drinks of various kinds because it's currently just under 12 degrees in my flat. And though I'm not one of the unfortunate ones who had snow yesterday, it's still pretty cold. In fact, I'm shivering. So here's to another caffeine filled day. All that means is it's time for another episode of Not Before Coffee. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, TV show marathoner, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and very honest caffeine fiend. This week, I am back with the final episode of Jennifer Aniston's season, and being honest, it's one that I struggled to watch and struggle even more to define. As I mentioned in the previous film episode, this one is likely the film that most will immediately associate with Jennifer Aniston. It's one that probably resonates more with people than others, and perhaps that's a reason why I had to push myself to watch it. The film for this week is The Breakup, which was released in 2006. When Brooke, an art dealer, and Gary, a tour bus driver, finally call it quits in their relationship, neither is willing to move out of their shared condo, with their friends suggesting a series of underhanded tactics that fail to get either Brooke or Gary to cave in, the only solution is to become hostile roommates. This film is actually very different to the other three that I've watched so far, and that's probably not a bad thing. There were a few directions I could have chosen for this season. I could have continued down the comedy route with films like Murder Mystery or Picture Perfect, or I could have looked at films like We're the Millers or Horrible Bosses, but I knew that I had to end this season with a bang. And this film is full of explosive moments, especially where emotions are concerned. This one doesn't start or end with a wedding, so it's incredibly different to the previous three. But given the title, that's hardly going to come as a surprise. We start off at a baseball game. The Chicago Cubs aren't playing well. And Gary Grabowski, played by Vince Vaughn, is at the game with his friend Johnny O, who is played by John Favreau, fresh off a relatively recent stint in Friends. Well, a good few years, really. But before his time as happy in Iron Man. On the same row, Brooke Myers is on a date. She doesn't look like she's having any fun. To be fair, she looks very, very much like her character Rachel in this. Barely listening to what her date is saying and just sipping on a drink as she's watching the game. Spying Brooke, Gary is clearly interested. And in an effort to impress, he orders six hot dogs and asks for all the sauce. He's being generous, offering hot dogs to others in his row, including Brooke. This conversation is, to be honest... In my perspective, very weird and just a tiny bit uncomfortable. Hot dogs, mustard and ketchup are the core topic in this conversation. At the end of the game, Gary steps in front of Brooke as she's following her date and asks her out for a drink. He's really intense though here, telling her that he's jealous of her date and not seeming at all happy when she says no. I think that Brooke probably feels the same about this guy who is incredibly persistent. 
is this what classes as charming? His argument is that if she's not going to marry this guy she's on a date with, then what's the point? She may as well go out with him, meaning Gary, on her own date. The credits then roll and we go through different stages of their relationship. They seem happy and like they're having fun, which is important, including when they've just purchased a condo and are getting everything right, decorating and getting things how they want them to be. Some of these moments seem really weird to get on camera, like the photos when they're in bed together, kissing and snuggling. It's sort of like, this is Instagram before Instagram. The photos take us to the present day. Gary is one of three brothers who own a bus tour company that travels around Chicago. Brooke is completely at the other end of the spectrum and works in a gallery. She's an art expert dealing with expensive art on the daily. She's a totally different personality than her partner. But you know what they say, opposites attract. And just noticed... What the heck? (laughs) Justin Long plays Christopher, her assistant or the receptionist in the gallery, and he is nothing but a cliche. Clearly meant to be a long-haired Jack McFarland, you know, from Will and Grace. The hair gives him a totally different vibe to the one he had when he was the bed-hopping relationship advisor in He's Just Not That Into You. It's a total contrast. I think that there may also be a bit of the hippie in him, constantly answering the phone at the gallery with things like happy holidays, despite it definitely not being holiday season any longer. It's clear that her current customer is handsome, wealthy, interested in art and very into Brooke. When he is unable to find something he likes, she tells him that finding the perfect piece of art for your home is like finding the perfect mate. Is this foreshadowing, perhaps? At home that evening, Brooke is making dinner when Gary comes back from work. She tells him that he needs to get ready for their guests, so he gets a beer out of the fridge and goes to sit down in the lounge to watch a game. And then an argument starts about lemons. She asks him to buy her 12 for a centrepiece, and he bought her home three and he can't see any issue with this. He tells her that the chicken he just tasted was hot and needs a bit more flavour, so perhaps they could use the lemons for that instead of as a table decoration. Oh boy, that was a dumb thing to say. She's been slaving over the food for hours and he tells her that while he's sitting on the sofa in his work clothes with a beer, is he a moron or is that just me? Just as the first of the guests arrive, Gary finishes his beer and heads to have a shower, leaving Brooke to not only greet their guests, but finish setting the table and finish the food. It appears that this dinner is one with both families, and are they perhaps expecting some kind of big announcement? Unfortunately, over dinner, what they do get is a rather awkward moment, as Brooke and Gary argue because he wants a pool table and can't see why they can't have one, as it can just usurp the place currently used by the dining table. Never has their incompatibility become more clear than in this awkward dinner moment when the families are eating together. When Brooke's brother Richard starts talking about how Gary's brother's face lights up and he's so inspired when talking about the business they run, you can almost see Dennis, who is played by Vincent D'Onofrio, clench up as though the fact that Richard is gay 
apparently everybody thinks he is apart from his family, it's abhorrent to him. He goes so far as to put his arm around his partner to show, hey, I'm straight here. Things take an interesting turn when everyone gets involved in Richard's a cappella version of Owner of a Lonely Heart by Yes. These words could not be more perfect for Gary and his attitude. Move yourself. You always live your life. Never thinking of the future. Prove yourself. You are the move you make. Take your chances, win or lose. Brooke's mum offers to help clean up, but Gary is just keen for everyone to leave and says that they'll get it, then promptly leaves Brooke to do all the work while he catches up on a game. It looks like actually he's playing Grand Theft Auto in this moment. They're in the middle of an argument and he's going to start talking about sex because apparently she says you never do anything for me and he responds with, oh well I certainly did something for you this morning. It starts over lemons but it's clear that there is so much wrong with this relationship. He thinks that he does more for her than she does for him and therefore she should be grateful. Not saying that they're both not in the wrong here but it does take a bit of compromise. He then tells her that he wants to be left the hell alone and she tells him that's fine, he can do what he wants and she doesn't care anymore because she is done. And I'm surprised it took this long. At that point, you can see Gary realises what he's done but it's too late to go back. For a moment, it seems as though he's going to try and make things right but instead he just gets his coat from the hall and walks out, leaving her there to contemplate everything that just occurred. Brooke calls her friend Addie and rants about the argument. Addie is supportive, but Brooke didn't want to break up. She just wanted Gary to care about the relationship as much as she does. She thinks that perhaps things will get better when they've both had a night to think everything over and that he'll come back and apologise. Really, she thinks that he's going to apologise for what he said? Sometimes the saying in vino veritas is quite true and I think sometimes in the heat of a moment you can say things that you've been holding in for a very long time and I get the feeling that is what happened in this situation. Gary goes to see his friend Johnny at his bar. Johnny, to be fair, actually reminds me really of Nick Frost's character Mick in Spaced. He immediately assumes that Brooke is cheating and starts talking about ways that they can find out who it is. He then tells Gary that she has told him she doesn't want to be with him. Until this point, Gary seems as though he wants to try and mend things, but Johnny is the bad voice in his head. He's now talking about making sure that he keeps the condo and that she will be the one who is forced to move out. Word of the breakup sure spreads fast in this universe if even her assistant knows about the breakup when Brooke arrives at work the following day. She is then sent home by her manager and when she gets there she discovers that Gary has turned the entire condo into a frat house complete with pool table where the dining table used to be. I am trying so hard at this point to feel any sympathy for the Gary character, but he's just making it so difficult for me to like him at all. One of Gary's friends, Riggleman, played by Jason Bateman, clearly does not want to be there. He's the only one of Gary's friends who has actually grown up over the duration of Brooke and Gary's relationship. 
As Riggleman's getting ready to leave, Brooke goes into the bedroom where she has been sleeping, puts You Ought to Know by Alanis Morissette on the stereo in their bedroom and starts to throw all Gary's clothes out into the hall. She is trying to make a point. Not sure she's doing it very well, if I'm honest. And then it's bowling night and Gary arrives even though he's not expected. Brooke points out that as they're no longer a couple, he is no longer welcome. Gary tells the rest of the team that they need to vote because he doesn't want to go. However, despite the reluctance on the part of the men, he is voted off. He makes a speech about how he made a commitment, but it's too late. And he's talking about a bowling team rather than their relationship, when that's what they should be focusing on trying to fix or completely breaking apart and separating their lives. It would be far healthier. Brooke is deluded though. She thinks that he's going to have no choice but to change because he's just about to realise that he wants her back. However, right now he's showing no indication of hating the single life, despite not being the best at socialising. His younger brother, Lupus, now that's not a name you hear every day, at least not for a person, seems to be trying to teach him, but oh, that guy is just creepy. He starts talking about how he wants to wrap a girl in, I suppose, cellophane and just leave her two spaces, her mouth and her eyes. It's like, yeah, you're going to get arrested. You are a psycho. The next morning, having had a night out on the town, Gary is really frustrated when he's unable to get the lion that he wanted as loud music is coming from Brooke's room. When he pushes open the door, he discovers that it's her brother Richard and his a cappella group rehearsing. She definitely just knows the way to get on his last nerve. Apparently, as things happen in this kind of film anyway, game night is coming up. Brooke offers Gary a way out, but then he starts talking about honouring his commitments again. Same talk that he had when they were at the bowling game. So that's not going to be awkward at all, is it? All their friends together in one place with two people who actually cannot stand to be in the same room together. On the evening of the game, he interrupts her shower and asks what they're going to eat. And she tells him that he can sort it out for himself. So clearly on game night, she is the one that does all the heavy lifting and he sits there and takes the credit. He's really making things difficult. And at this point, I have to say that the entire thing is far more uncomfortable than it is at all funny. After an explosive, to say the least, game night and everybody has gone, Riggleman sits there with them. It turns out he's the realtor who found them the condo and he is trying to talk to them rationally. Gary tells their friend that not only is the logical thing for Brooke to move out and then pay him for the work he did around the condo, but that she didn't contribute anything to it. So she didn't contribute anything when it comes to the decor or the food that they eat or the beautiful kitchen or anything else. He's telling Riggleman that everything that she did has contributed zero value. Therefore, everything should be his. Riggleman is trying his hardest to be the most logical. He can see at this point there is no turning back that these two need to sell up and go their separate ways. 
The next day, Brooke is still reeling from everything that has gone on. However, she needs to go to work. Her boss, Marilyn, recommends that if she wants to get Gary back, then she needs to show him what he's missing. And her suggestion is to get a very painful bikini wax called the Telecivalis and then go back and show him what he's missing by stripping down naked and then going on a date. Not naked. Really, why would she want him back after all the foul crap that they've held at each other? It's just untenable. Can you imagine, really, thinking about this, how would these two have coped living in such close quarters during lockdown? I think they'd have probably been a murder-suicide case by this point. After the torturous wax, Brooke goes home, has a shower, and then after uttering, who loves your baby, which I have to admit feels really weird, especially knowing that Telly Savalis was actually Jennifer Aniston's godfather, walks into the living room where Gary is playing a computer game naked. She definitely catches his attention. That's, <laughs> there's no denying that at all. She then walks back to her room just as the doorbell rings and a man shows up to take her out on a date. He looks like he's dressed for a weird Miami Vice revival, complete with slightly too large cream jacket. Not sure where the fashion advice came from for that one. Just before they leave for their date, Gary tells Paul that her easy drink is an apple martini. So you just know that when the waiter comes to their table at the restaurant, that is exactly what he's going to pick. And sure enough, he does. He's nothing if not predictable. He's not interested in getting to know her, despite the fact that she could well be a really interesting person with plenty to say and plenty to offer a conversation. She changes his order to water and then her phone rings and it's Addie offering her a much-needed out. It turns out, after all that, that Paul was actually a friend of Addie's husband and Brooke is not very nice about him at all. Gary, meanwhile, is blowing up at everybody. His brother Dennis is the one responsible for every single thing that has to be done at the business but Gary can't see that he puts pressure on his brother about the things that keep the business running and legal. Okay, so he's emotional, things are happening at home, but he's just taking it out on everybody and acknowledging nothing is his responsibility. Or rather, he's not acknowledging that anything is his responsibility because it is. Brooke's next date is very different. A guy called Mike, played by the always lovely Jeff Stoltz. I've talked about him previously in my episode all about The Finder, which I will link below. Love that show and I love him in it. However, by the time she stopped fussing with her already great looking hair, which my hair did that so easily, he started playing a game against Gary on the PlayStation and it seems like she's going to have to admit defeat as Mike is as much a lad as the man she's trying to make jealous. The thing is that now they're just making little digs at each other, as is demonstrated by the fact that when the game is finally over, she tempts Mike out with a promise of a great martini bar. So you know that's just her thumbing her nose at him for his previous comments to her last date. Unfortunately, now all Mike can talk about is Gary, doesn't make for the best date when all they can do is say how wonderful your ex is. 
So she calls a halt and just leaves. And without hesitation, he asks her to get Gary to call him as the cab pulls away. I'm not quite sure here what this is meant to illustrate. Are they trying to make Gary seem more sympathetic if a total stranger can find him wonderful? I'm honestly not sure at all. At the condo, Gary has invited friends over. They're all smoking cigars and playing strip poker. And Brooke is sitting on the toilet, not in that way, watching her friend bathing her children. When Brooke gets home, it's like a strip club in their living room. Yet he's really jealous and sad about her date and really evidencing it that way. The next morning, Riggleman calls with great news. Brooke leaves the bedroom and finds out that the flat looks like a war zone. However, when Gary wakes up and finds everything has been tidied, there are flowers around and a note beside his bed telling him that the condo has been sold and they have to be out in two weeks. At work, Brooke's latest wealthy client, Carson Wiggum, played by Ivan Sergei, who was also in the original Charmed, asks her out on a date. But clearly burned by her most recent experiences, she tells him that she's dating someone. Her colleague, Christopher, just doesn't get it. Brooke realises that at this point, she is not as innocent in the mess that was her relationship with Gary as she believed herself to be and knows what she has to do to make things right. When she gets home, she tells Gary that she has bought boxes from work to start the packing process. She also tells him that she has some tickets for the old 97s that night and offers him the second ticket. It was meant to be a gift for him. He originally misunderstands and offers to buy them both. But she tells him that she's planning on going and she'd like him to go with her. This conversation feels really sad because there's just such simple acceptance in it. They're like people who can barely stand to be in each other's company any longer, which is really quite upsetting when you realise that before they were in love. She leaves his ticket at the box office and heads in, orders two beers, one for her, one for him, and goes to her seat. The concert has started and he's a no-show. It's as though her olive branch was a completely wasted gesture. You can see that this was a last-ditch effort to try and fix some of their issues, to at least end things as friends, but it just didn't happen. Instead of enjoying this concert, she ends up leaving miserable. At the condo later, Brooke is in her room crying. Gary has come to apologise for missing the concert and says that he'll pay her back for the ticket, but he just doesn't get the point. He's completely missed it. She starts to tell him all the things that she's done to try and make things work between them. But is she perhaps going above and beyond what he needs? She feels like he didn't appreciate her at all and just wanted a sign that he gave a damn about her. However, at the same time, how was he meant to know any of this because they don't appear to have talked about it at all? Needing some kind of comfort he goes to see his friend Johnny O. However, if he's expecting any pity, then he is in the wrong place. Because Johnny actually says the unexpected. She probably just wanted you to show her the respect of not standing her up. It's her fault she got hurt. She should have expected it from you. Apparently, Gary is a fun guy and everyone likes him. But everybody who knows him 
also knows that he will do only what he wants. And it's everyone else's problem if what Gary wants to do isn't what they want to do. So he comes across as inflexible and uncaring. Some painful home truths come from this conversation with Johnny, but it's not clear if any of what he said actually goes in. At work, Brooke has to steal herself to go and speak with her boss, but she knows that it needs to be done. When she finally gets to Marilyn's office, it's to discover her boss doing a sketch of a very firmly sculpted naked man, who is quickly dismissed when Brooke says that they need to talk. She's decided that she wants to go travelling and she has announced that she is going to leave. It's incredibly impulsive and unexpected given everything else we have seen from her character thus far in the film. Marilyn is stunned into silence and then just hands Brooke a blank cheque to get her to stay. When she realises that Brooke is actually serious, she tells her that if she makes it to Rome, there's somewhere she needs to visit. She then says the unexpected, given that she has apparently fired her several times, and says that her job will be waiting for her if she ever decides to come back to Chicago. That evening, when she gets home, she's with Carson, and it appears that Gary has taken some of what Johnny said to him to heart, and has made dinner and set the table for an intimate meal. He wants to open up and tell her that he still cares for her, and that he wants to make her happy, but... Really, right now, is that actually the right time? Has he waited too long? Has too much happened to fix all these things that are wrong between them? Now he's willing to do the things that she wants? After everything has fallen apart, he couldn't have made the effort before. He tells her that he loves her and he's sorry, but they've hurt each other so badly. With tears rolling down her face, Brooke tells him that she no longer feels the same way and she has nothing left to give him. I have to be honest, this point was agonising to watch because you can imagine these conversations occurring and after all of the childish things they've done to each other, this is one moment of serious emotion amongst everything else that's occurred. It turns out, while Gary believes that Carson is there for a date, he's actually there to look at a piece of carved wood that was being used as decor in their living room. She's selling it to him because she doesn't need these ties if she's going off on her travels. Gary goes to drown his sorrows, believing that Brooke was with Carson for more than an art exchange, and Johnny tells him that he will make a few calls to find someone to get this new guy out of the way, now that Gary has decided he wants Brooke back. When he gets back to the apartment, the meal hasn't been touched, and Brooke is asleep in bed, alone. Finally, he starts to do the things that he should have been doing all along. He goes to work and does all the paperwork and sorts out his office space, so at least one element of his life, the business, can start being exactly as it should be. He also apologises to his brother Dennis for being an arse all the time. Plenty deserved, to be fair. Slowly, boxes are being packed and the condo is emptied. Brooke is standing in the middle of what was the dining room and the final part of their relationship is done. She gives him her key and tells him that there are thousands of things she would have done differently. 
with the condo, though the hints about their relationship are there. We have a brief time lapse at this point and we see Gary on a boat tour in the summer. They are finally on land and sea. Then it's winter. Brooke is back in the city after her travels and she bumps into Gary. They are better off without each other. They've grown, he's lost weight, his business is doing well and whatever she's doing is making her happy. As they head their separate ways after a mini reunion, they take one look back and then keep on walking. There was no new episode of The Bookshop this week. However, last week I released an extended episode covering the first book in Rick Riordan's Percy Jackson series, and I had two fantastic guests, Kelsey and Kaylin from Touch Your Shelf. Don't miss it. It's available for download now. The breakup was definitely not a romantic comedy. It was probably closer to the anti-romantic comedy that it was publicised as, if anything. It was filmed during 2005, and as anyone who has ever read the tabloids will know, this is the year that Jennifer Aniston was going through a divorce after Brad and Angelina started their relationship. Funnily enough, this was apparently a cathartic experience for Aniston, who, in an interview not long after wrapping the film, said, This movie was fate. To be able to walk through a movie called The Breakup, about a person going through a breakup, while I'm actually going through a breakup, how did that happen? It's been cathartic. And apparently it turned into a fantastic experience. So perhaps that's what everyone needs to do after going through a divorce. Make a film, write a book, do something creative to help process the experience. Who knows? Did you know that they actually recorded two endings for this film? I didn't until I mentioned that I was watching it to my new manager and she said, I've seen this with a different ending. She went on to tell me about it. So when I watched the film, I had to let my fingers do a little walking and searched online for it. I finally found it and watched it. And though the script is almost identical in both versions, the one that was originally filmed and ditched for the one you're more familiar with has a few minor differences. For one, they're both in new couples, though their new partners, Becky and Greg, make it obvious that they have a type. The scene also happens in the summer, so longer is likely to have passed since they broke up. But apart from that, there is that same look behind as they're walking away. If you want to have a watch for yourself, I have posted the link in the info box. So, what about the budget? Well, this was somewhere middle of the road when compared to the other films I've already talked about. Filming took place over a few months in Chicago, and the budget was $52 million. In the global box office, it made just under four times that, so pretty impressive, with a total of $205.7 million. Not as much as Just Go With It, with its $215 million box office, but that film also had an $80 million budget, so it kind of evens itself out. I know I haven't talked about DVD and post-box office profits since the proposal, with its incredibly impressive DVD sales, but it has to be said that after leaving the cinema, the breakup had continued to make money, In fact, in DVD sales, it has made an impressive $51 million in the US alone. How did it do with the critics? 
To be honest, the more reviews I read, the more I realise that so many movie critics don't seem to actually like film all that much. It doesn't matter whether it's a comedy or a drama, there is always going to be someone who will say something bad about it. Over on Rotten Tomatoes, the breakup has earned 34% from 194 critics. And despite being a box office draw, courtesy of actors like John Favreau, Vince Vaughn and Jennifer Aniston, the audience score is just over 46% from over 250,000 ratings and reviews. So what did the critics have to say? James Berardinelli from Real Reviews was not scathing exactly, but he certainly didn't like the film if his review is anything to go by. If you have a powerful desire to see Jennifer Aniston's bare butt, the breakup is not to be missed. But if the former Mrs. Pitt's posterior isn't high on your list of sights to see, the film is better left to unspool in theatres unviewed. The breakup is like Danny DeVito's The War of the Roses, but without the wit, the acid, and the blacker-than-black humour. In fact, the breakup is most effective when it lumbers into the realm of melodrama, which it does a few times too often for something being touted as a romantic comedy. For a movie with that label, there's surprisingly little romance and less comedy. There may be a laugh or two sprinkled throughout, but for the most part, on those occasions, when the script tries to be funny, the attempts are thin and awkward. More surprising, however, is the fact that the breakup doesn't try hard or often to solicit chuckles. There are times when its seriousness is almost unsettling. People expecting a riotous evening from the breakup are going to be stunned by what ends up on the cinematic menu. Hype and expectations are likely to be the film's biggest enemies because it does not deliver what the advanced publicity promises. That, in and of itself, wouldn't be a bad thing if the movie substituted something of value. Unfortunately, the breakup fails to satisfy on any of the many levels on which it could have succeeded. It's an uneven mess with a confused tone. The number of scenes that work are dwarfed by those that don't, and some nice acting by Aniston is wasted. The breakup is too badly fractured to be deemed repairable. On IMDb, they were more mixed. The film earned 5.8 in their 10-star rating system, so not everyone hated it, but there were enough reviews that were incredibly negative, picking one single point and mulling it over to the point that it's clearly all they could see, including this one. Misogynistic and unwatchable. The guy is like a cliché of a typical selfish American man who lets his wife cook and do all the dishes after hosting a dinner while he sits around playing video games with a beer. Seriously, and she nags him. Can you help do the dishes first? And he is like, yeah, yeah, sure, later. Cringeworthy. The film is so sexist and abusive that I felt sorry for both actress and actor being part of such a tragedy. Not to mention they had zero chemistry, acting like a cartoon version of themselves. It was a very painful watch, honestly. A couple shouting at each other for the guy being a dickhead. The recent film Marriage Story did what this one tried to do back then, only it was executed masterfully, realistically, with a guy who was not a total douchebag. Am I supposed to feel sorry for Vince for being a turd who drinks beer in front of the TV watching sports while his girlfriend is working alone to entertain their guests? I don't get it. Was this film unwatchable? No. Was it painful? A little bit. 
I'm not going to lie, watching a relationship fall apart is not the sort of thing I'm going to select to watch when I want something to entertain me. Witnessing these two people very quickly grow to dislike each other was an agonising process. I've watched this actually happen to friends and family. I've been in the position of their friends and family as an argument has broken out about things that seem really tiny to one but highlight the worst in the other. It's not something I would ever call enjoyable. All of that being said, I have to be honest, I'm not sure why they were together in the first place. He was talking about how marriage and commitment made a date worthwhile in the beginning, and by the end he was someone who I felt nothing but disdain for. Sadly, this relationship was doomed to failure from the very beginning. No homemade meal and a beautifully set table was going to be able to fix all of the things, or any of them for that matter, that had already fallen to the wayside before the film even began. We've come to the question and answer part of the episode, so are you ready? Here goes. Did I enjoy it? I really wanted to. This is only the second time I have watched The Breakup, and I don't actually remember much from the first time at all. I'm not sure what I expected from it, but it wasn't a film that left me feeling so drained by the time the credits rolled. The breakdown of any relationship is traumatic, no matter which side of it you're on. There were moments I felt were done incredibly well, but then things would shift and I found myself getting annoyed again, mostly with Gary, but there are certain things with Brooke that were also frustrating. In the process of breaking up, it felt like they were both proving so many times why neither of them were ready for this kind of relationship. Would I watch it again? This was actually my second viewing, as I've already said, and I think that's enough. When I am watching a film for my personal entertainment, give me the explodey action like Die Hard or superheroes from Marvel or an old musical like Calamity Jane rather than the trauma of a relationship breakup. Marriage Story, which was mentioned in one of those rather disparaging reviews, has been on my watch list since it was released. I know it's meant to be amazing and has a great cast, but for some reason it's still sitting there unwatched. I would prefer to read a book about the destruction of a relationship than watch a film covering it, as in this case the background of their breakdown and the relationship itself was lacking and many parts of it felt a little empty. So, how are things in the coffee household this week? The last week has actually been an interesting one. Yes, there have been moments when I have felt my nerve endings were exposed to the outside world in a way I really don't like, but I will come to that in a bit. On the whole, things have been going really well. I have managed to get my new website live and surprisingly the launch was a day early. I have been making a lot of plans behind the scenes that will come to fruition at the start of 2022 and I'm really looking forward to sharing more of them with you over the next few weeks. Sure, things have been manic as projects that need to close before Christmas have just kicked up a notch at work and I have occasionally looked at my bank balance and winced about the money that is going out rather than coming in. But that's this time of year for everyone so I'm no different. These things, in the scheme of it, are relatively minor, even if a few of them have led to unwanted events that always occur at night. Okay, I hear it now. That's not what I mean at all. For years, my biggest problems when it comes to panic attacks and anxiety tend to rear their ugly head at night. 
Just as I am about to fall asleep, I am at my most mentally vulnerable. It reached such a point about a decade ago that my doctor prescribed sleeping pills. Of course, me being my usual paranoid self, I couldn't take them, fearing that I was losing control over my ability to wake if I did. What if there was a fire or I had a heart attack or something? See, night is my worst. After multiple talks with him and a psychiatrist, I was prescribed beta blockers instead. Essentially, if I don't feel like my heart is about to beat its way out of my chest and my entire body isn't going to flight mode, I will be able to sleep better. In theory, that's right. And it works really well. And for probably five nights out of seven, this is exactly what happens. Unfortunately, this week I had six bad nights and one okay-ish one. The six bad nights included two, maybe three if I'm being generous, hours of restless sleep, with much tossing and turning as I desperately tried to calm the mental demon that visited me, and I still had to get up and go to work. Today, as I record this, it's Sunday, and I'm still struggling to function, knowing that the whole rigmarole will start again in the morning. With any luck, that won't include further horrible thoughts invading my brain before I even get a chance to sleep. The worst thing about all of this is that I have no idea what triggered it. Work is going well. Life is going okay. I'm making positive inroads when it comes to everything. Yet for some reason, the negative thoughts, the night terrors, the anxiety attacks just want to rain on my parade and I want them to stop. I hate that I can go from balanced and able to breathe well enough to sleep without any worries one week to nerves pressing down on me like a 10-ton weight the next. I know that I have to just work through it, keep my head above water and carry on. I'm an adult, I'm responsible for myself, I am capable. I just wish that some days weren't like this. I wish I could switch the part of my brain off that is determined to interrupt my plans for a good seven hours of rest. So that's it for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed the listen and I'll be back next week with more. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family and please post a review or give me a star rating over on Podchaser. I love reading what you have to say. You can follow me on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs or Instagram at notbeforecoffeepodcast or over on Good Pods where I've set up an account at notbeforecoffee. Well, I need another cup of coffee as I definitely haven't had enough. So I'm going to go and put the kettle on. Until next time, this is me saying farewell.